Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt, Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise. And please allow me to introduce Mary Roach. Mary's the kind of person who's got info about wildlife that you would never find in a field guide. There's a lot of good stuff in a human refrigerator and freezer, particularly in a wealthy community. And apparently the bears prefer the premium ice cream, the less expensive Western family ice cream. I'm probably going to get sued by Western family ice cream per se. (laughs) <laughs> the bears don't and will not even eat their ice cream. Mary Roach is a nonfiction author known for her one-syllable titles. Her books Stiff, Gulp, and Bonk each cover the science behind one of life's squirmiest subjects. In Stiff, it's research into death and decomposition. Gulp is all about digestion. And Bonk is a headlong dive into the science of sex. The orgasm reflex can be triggered by a surprisingly broad range of input. There's such a thing as a knee orgasm in the literature. Uh, the most curious one that I came across was a, it was a case report of a woman who had an orgasm every time she brushed her teeth. You, now, you would think this woman would like have excellent oral hygiene. <laughs> That's Mary from her TED Talk, 10 Things You Didn't Know About Orgasms. What makes Mary's books so fun to read is that she's almost always a part of the action. She's either tagging along in the field, volunteering as a research subject, or occasionally getting in the way. I think when people hear the word science, they think, oh, I don't want to read that book. So I like to pull them in, get them reading about science without them really realizing. And then they'll go, oh, 
I guess this was sort of a science book, and it's interesting. Her latest book is called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. And yeah, it is interesting, which was why it was our pick this time around for the Outside In Book Club. Yeah, essentially, it's a book about um, wildlife crime prevention, animals break all of our laws, uh, whether it's manslaughter, breaking and entering, home invasion, jaywalking, littering. They do all that. Obviously, animals are following instincts and not our laws, but it does create problems both for them and for people. It creates problems. Problems both silly and very serious. Today, we've got a conversation with and about author Mary Roach and her new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. As usual, you do not need to have read the book in order to enjoy this episode. But if you do read it, you can share your own thoughts by emailing us a voice memo. Our email is outsidein at nhpr.org. And also listen in during the break to hear what we're reading next. Okay, our in-house book club discussion members for this episode were Taylor Quimby and Jessica Hunt. Hey, you two. Hey. Hi. Take it away. Well, let's jump in. Fuzz is a book about wildlife science that masquerades at least for a little while as a book about law enforcement. Sure enough, the first chapter is focused on the forensics of maulings. How do authorities know, for example, if a mauled body found in the woods was killed by a bear, a cougar, or another person? But eventually, the book wanders into very different territory. We read about monkeys harassing people for food in India. We read about people that blow up dead trees to stop them from falling and killing humans. And we read about the baffling and at times appalling efforts we go through to eradicate rodents, rabbits, and birds that get in our way. And by the end, you start to wonder who, if anybody, is the criminal in this relationship. So we picked out some of our favorite stories of so-called animal crimes from the book. Bear burglars, murderous elephants, and littering vandal birds eating everything and pooping everywhere. And first up, it's the bears. That is a very fine-looking pot of honey you've got there. And so remarkably gooey. Gooey? Oh, that happens to be my personal. So, Jessica, you've lived in New Hampshire for, how long have you lived in New Hampshire? Forever. Forever. Okay. So, have you ever seen a black bear in the wild? Yes. I don't, I have seen one outside my house at one point when I lived in the middle of nowhere. And it was like the size of a dog and I was terrified. It feels like a rare thing to see a bear, even living in a place where there are lots of bears. Yes. And you know what? I just read a description of them called the black ghost. (laughs) And I think they're super quiet. And don't want to actually interact with us. Right. Unless they're just, you know, like chugging down your bird feeder. Right. Right. You're giving them maple donuts. Yeah. Uh, So I was pretty shocked to read recently that there are more than 800,000 black bears in North America, which is more than scientists think there were when colonists first arrived on the continent. But here's the thing. Black bears only occupy about half their former range from that time. So that means there are more bears in closer proximity to more people than ever before. People have become more tolerant of bears, but it's very, in the words of a bear researcher in Michigan, I think it was, it's hard to be tolerant when there's a bear in your kitchen. So let's set the scene. 
Towards the start of the book, Mary Roach takes readers to Aspen, Colorado. For humans, Aspen is known as a ski resort town and a mountain playground of the rich and famous. But for hungry bears, Aspen is a town known for its excellent nighttime dumpster diving. I bet you the dumpsters in Aspen are great. Yeah. So you have spent some time in Aspen, Colorado. Um, Yes. What kinds of conflicts did you see there? Over the summer that I was in Pitkin County, I mean, I came there at the end of summer. So starting from when the bears came out of hibernation to when I was there in, I believe it was late August, I think there were 421 complaint calls about bears breaking in and damaging property. Not necessarily 421 bears. Uh, the, the bears that figure this out are doing that every day. Once they figure it out, they're like, hey, this is my gig. Forget about acorns and crab apples. I'm going for the garbage. I'm going for the dumpsters. <laughs> and so there's a lot of recidivism. Recidivism. <laughs> or perhaps we should say uh, repeat offenders. Or if we're thinking about this from the wildlife perspective, I guess, adaptation. They're just smart bears. Really? Yeah. Mary spoke with a researcher named Stuart Breck, who's with the National Wildlife Research Center. He told her there was this wave of car break-ins at Yosemite National Park from 2001 to 2007, bears forcing their way in to look for food and whatnot. He said there were something like 1,100 break-ins in total. But Breck said they believe that all of those break-ins perpetrated by just four bears. Those bears, those bears must be legendary in the bear community. <laughs> <laughs> the other bears, like, <laughs> are like Bobby and Janet over there, can you believe the cars that they broke into? There's so much I want to know about this. Like, what kind of cars were the most vulnerable, for example? Well, Mary said that uh, there was a preference to minivans, which is maybe not surprising because there's more likely to be food in there. But it could also be that they're easier to break into for some reason. Like they have that big handle. That sliding door. <laughs> yeah. Here's Mary Roach reading from the book. In this scene, she's walking around Aspen at 3 in the morning with Stuart Breck, the same researcher from before. They look down an alleyway just in time to see a couple of bears who've broken into a supposedly bear-resistant restaurant dumpster. The lighter-colored bear is working a crab leg while its colleague noses through cabbage leaves. What if these bears just learned, Breck is saying. I can eat garbage with people standing and watching me and nothing bad happens. When Breck first joined the National Wildlife Research Center, he did some human-bear conflict research in Yosemite National Park. In the park's early days, he says, staff would set up bleachers and lights around the garbage dump and charge visitors for the show. 20 or more black bears gorging and pushing each other around. Right now, we're the people in the bleachers. We've just given these two a little less reason to worry about humans. I guess one of the things this book made me think of uh, as I was reading was just how much I underestimate the speed at which animals habituate to human society. Like, you hear about these bears, but there are other examples in the book, too, where, you know, something eats a plate of human food, and it seems like they just change their whole lifestyle in a second. Yes, I agree. And I don't know why I found it striking that they the bears recognize the wildlife um, officials 
car sounds and scatter. They're like, oh, here he comes. Let's get out of here. Yeah. Like, that's amazing to me. On the other hand, my dog also can tell the UPS truck. But, yeah. But this is exactly why prevention is so important, Mary says. You know, once a bear learns to love human food, tearing into the sticky center console of a, a minivan in Yosemite is just a gateway crime to bigger and better halls, right? Uh, And they eventually, some of them take to actually breaking into houses, sometimes when people are there and occasionally when people are sitting down to a meal. The bear comes in through the door, grabs something off the table and leaves. Mary writes that in Pitkin County... That's where Aspen is located. They call French door handles bear handles because they're so easy for them to open. If doorknobs are hollow, they'll literally crush them. They can't get it on the ground floor. They'll climb up and jiggle the handle on the deck. It's like that scene in Jurassic Park with the raptors. There is, <laughs> like, you, there is no handle that is not a bear handle. Yeah. And yet, once inside, some bears leave a surprisingly clean crime scene. Mary got to witness such a crime scene herself, and she described how the bear broke in. Uh, came in through a big window off of a lower deck, and then made its way up the stairs, through the house to the kitchen without knocking anything over, without really, other than the broken honey jar and the empty ice cream container and the cottage cheese on the floor in the kitchen, uh, really did very little damage. I think think maybe my favorite image from the book is just this really short description of uh, a scene in which a bear broke into a house and took pains to unwrap individual Hershey's Kisses Um, And another one that opened a refrigerator and, in order to get the good stuff, set aside a carton of eggs gently without breaking any. It sounds funny, but it's also really, really serious because the eventual penalty for bears that get reported multiple times uh, or in very rare cases wind up hurting someone is going to be the death penalty. There are different folks in every state who do this kind of work fish and game agencies, people from Departments of Natural Resources. But if someone reports a bear in garbage or in a kitchen, they will trap it, they'll tag the bear, and repeat offenders will get darted and put down. And often it's the scientists who are trying to reduce conflict between bears and people who have to do the very dirty work of actually killing them when things go wrong. You're the person who, in a conflict situation where the animal is perceived to be a threat, Um, you, the person who loves wildlife, is the one who has to come in and destroy that animal, and it's really hard. And on top of that, these folks will get uh, death threats from people in the community who are angry about the bear being put down. And so it's a very, very emotionally challenging job. So to get back to the gentle bears, the ones who are breaking in without doing any actual breaking, this is the silver lining. Folks don't always call the authorities when a conscientious bear takes a little bit of food but slips away quietly because they know what's going to happen if they do. So that's kind of a promising thing because those bears live longer. The aggressive, really aggressive bears tend to uh, get put down fairly quickly. So not having as many cubs. So I'm wondering, I kind of wonder, you know, are, are bears and through natural selection evolved to be more mellow. And eventually, could we have a situation where they're kind of like just like big raccoons, you know, that we could live with them? I don't know. It's kind of Pollyanna of me, but um, I, I took some hope out of that.
Climate change is actually reducing the average length of hibernation for bears. There's a study that says by 2050, bears could be active for a full 40 days more than they are now. And that means more time spent foraging, more time spent wandering into towns and into cities. And black bear attacks are incredibly rare, but they do happen. There have been about 70 black bear deaths in North America since the year 1900. So when people leave food out or fail to lock up the dumpster, they are putting themselves in more danger, yes, but not much. More likely, it's the bears who are going to wind up dead. Okay, so what about an animal that doesn't sound as dangerous, but is actually a much bigger threat? Bigger in every way. <laughs> it just sort of stunned me because I think of elephants as, I mean, I grew up with them as Babar and Dumbo, National Geographic, and then I was hit with this statistic that 500 people a year in India are killed by elephants. I couldn't, 500 people a year? So when an elephant attacks, which, okay, that's not really fair. They're not always attacking. It sounds like a bad Discovery Channel show when elephants attack. Um, but uh, it can be just because they're walking and stumble into someone and trample them to death. Sometimes it happens because they're drunk. Elephants are apparently drawn to, I think it's pronounced haria, which is a fermented rice beer that's stored in barrels, sometimes outside village homes in India. And the elephants will drink it up, stumble around, you know, like maybe crash into someone's house. Or uh, when they do maybe actually attack, it could be because they are in a state of hormonal rage. Male elephants, called bulls, uh, become very aggressive during an annual phase of development when their testosterone levels spike by as much as 10 times as normal. You described bull elephants during their sort of, um, it's almost like the rut. How, yeah, how do you Yeah, must. That? Uh-huh. Must. That was one of those words where I read it each time I thought, I don't know how to pronounce this word yet. Yeah, must. Elephants in must might actually chase after and kill humans if they're feeling threatened. The descriptions of these deaths are graphic. Let's just say elephants are very good at pulling things apart. Mm, that is graphic. Uh, but whereas in America, we put down bears for basically breaking open the honey jar if they do it in the wrong time, in India, their relationship with wildlife is so, so different. Uh, they, they are represented in Hinduism as gods. The Hanuman is the monkey god, Ganesh, the elephant. So that has that creates this lovely relationship with nature from an early stage among Hindus in, in India. And that has seemed to influence what actions are taken and how these situations are dealt with. Like in the U.S., habitat loss in India is, is one of the major drivers of human-wildlife conflict. Um, where there once was forest that stretched across borders, now herds are getting trapped in these isolated patches. And so elephants, yeah, they have little choice but to start wandering into populated areas, um, either searching for food or just on accident, just doing what they got to do. Mary tells the story of the Gopalpur tea estate. Every day, more than 2,000 workers collect tea leaves there. It's not drunk elephants those workers are concerned about. It's hungry ones. They're not e eating the tea. The tea leaves are quite bitter, but they're damaging a fair amount of the plants. But more than that, they come into the workers' villages, and the workers live in um, houses that aren't very sturdily built, and they sometimes have uh, produce and grains that they uh, use to feed themselves. And the elephants will come in sometimes, just knock down a wall, 
and, and raid the place. And I talked to this woman. I saw the aftermath of this, um, her bodega, where she had grains and things for sale to the workers' you know, community. This woman's name was Padma, and her bodega was pretty much flattened. The company is supposed to compensate workers who lose money to elephants. But when Mary met this woman, she had not yet been paid for damages. And I said, does this anger you? And do you wish that someone would kill these elephants? And she said, why would you kill a god? We just say namaste and please go away. Her anger was toward the company that she worked for, not the elephant. This was maybe the most interesting juxtaposition in the book to me. The bears in North America and then this section on elephants and leopards in India that comes right after. Because there's this basic assumption that here, uh, even if people don't want bears to be killed, if it's a choice between human safety and bears, that that like the, the thing to do is to do away with the bear. Like human safety is more important. And that is not an assumption that you can take around the globe. Um, for example, if a leopard accidentally kills someone in India, they don't automatically trap and kill the leopard. The leopard didn't necessarily do anything wrong. It was just being a leopard. You know, we start out really strong with animals as criminals in the beginning of the book. Right. But then as we go along, we actually just sort of drop that framework. And I kind of get the impression Mary's a little uncomfortable with that as well. Right, right. Like she... She knows that this is an interesting framing to, like, bring people in, but ultimately it leads to some dangerous thinking. The, the human criminal justice system is complicated and messed up enough as it is. Do we really need to be bringing animals into it? Right. There's more nuance there. Yeah. You could have done almost all of the same scenes, same sorts of ideas, um, and framed it as something like pests. You know, it could have been the science of nuisance animals or something like that. Did you intentionally steer away from that kind of thing? Yeah, I did. I, I don't like the word pest uh, because it it just reduces animals to this, to their status in our world. It gives us permission to just call someone to deal with it, to just uh, call the exterminator or call someone to set a trap and then just it magically goes away and who knows what this person does with that animal. And uh, so I, I don't feel like that's a fair way to sum up an animal, even a, even a rodent. My tusks, Baba! I'm afraid a ball went through the window, Cornelius. There's the culprit! We've done bears. We heard about elephants. Next up, birds. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. 
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey again, it's Justine. Before we get back to our conversation with author Mary Roach, we'd like to announce our next Outside In Book Club pick. Of course, you do not have to read the book to enjoy the episode, but if you'd like to read along in advance, our next pick is called Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore by Elizabeth Rush. In Rising, Elizabeth profiles the places where sea level rise is already transforming coastlines, from the Gulf Coast to New York City to California's Bay Area. And she talks to people living on the margins, the leading edge of sea level rise. If you're hearing this and thinking, oh my God, a book about climate change, I really feel you, but I did love reading this book. For a book on climate change, Elizabeth manages to straddle the line between bleak and beautiful, and even the funny. That's no doubt a reason that she took home the 2018 National Outdoor Book Award, and that she was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in general nonfiction. So let us know if you're reading along and what you think. You can email us or tag us on social media. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Outside In Radio. And you can also use the hashtag ReadingOutsideIn. All right, back to the show. Welcome back to Outside In. Today for our book club episode, we're speaking with author Mary Roach about her new book, Fuzz. When Nature Breaks the Law. I'm Taylor Quimby. I'm Jessica Hunt. So we've talked about bears and elephants. And in the second half of the episode, we're going to talk about birds. But before we do, Jessica, I must say, one of my absolute favorite things about Mary's writing style is her mastery of the footnote. Like there's, there's the book has just tons and tons of footnotes. Each one is a little Wikipedia wormhole in miniature, impeccably researched. It is rare to see half a page taken up by a footnote. Are these little windows into how you actually do the research? For sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, they are things that feel like too much of a side trip to plug it into the text of the, of the chapter. It just feels like too much of a diversion. But I can't, I don't want to let it go because to me it's kind of hilarious. There's a chapter about the ethics of eradicating so-called pests. And there's this half-page footnote entirely devoted to goose poop. At some point while researching, Mary had discovered this trail of increasingly wild, inaccurate internet claims about the quant- like how much a single goose can defecate per day. So the one research paper she found puts the number at one-third of a pound per day. But an article in a New Jersey paper claims that goose... Gooses? Geese. Geese. Thank you that geese poop twice their body weight on a daily basis. That's 40 pounds of goose shit. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Uh, And I tried to contact that reporter and they changed, they went in and changed the story. It was from some small paper and she wouldn't speak to me and it was like, goose poop gate. (laughs) Well, they say if it's not a good time, it's a good story. So (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, all the, the most awkward, risky, disgusting, whatever experiences are always the most fun to write up and the, I think more fun to read for people. So there's a silver lining to those experiences. The Goose Poop footnote is relevant, and not just a fun distraction, because a big chunk of fuzz is devoted to birds. Seagulls, blackbirds, crows, pigeons, turkey vultures. These are animals that eat crops, that will steal a sandwich out of your hand at the beach, make a mess on city sidewalks, and sometimes just kind of knock stuff over, act like jerks. And while scarecrows have been around for literally thousands of years, scientists now understand just how quickly birds are willing to call our bluff. They used taxidermied hawks, uh, and they looked at how long those hawks kept away smaller birds, and the answer was between five and eight hours. Which is why there is an ever-expanding search for some sort of technology, some sort of silver bullet that can finally scare off the birds for good. Kites that look like a giant eyeball, which is supposed to scare the birds. Uh, these days, people are taking to using drones. There's a robotic peregrine falcon which is awesome which actually flies by the weight of it by the just by its wings it doesn't have rotors pyrotechnics are still used these days lasers effigies we could go on and on about the weirdness of effigies and scaring away particularly vultures are freaked out by vulture effigies it's a it's a pretty uh, interesting and bizarre world and you're uh, when you say effigy you mean like a dead taxidermy yes. bird that's been hung upside down with its uh-huh. wings outspread Um, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Down in the Everglades, there's a problem with vultures um, coming into, landing on parked cars and ripping off the rubber on windshield wipers and the seal around the sunroof. Quick aside here on why vultures do this. One biologist Mary spoke to theorizes that it's a type of vulture neck workout. Ripping the rubber seals from cars is similar to ripping meat and tendons from an animal carcass. It's like vulture CrossFit. You know, you got to work out by, like, doing it. But regardless of why they do it. They do that, and people get mad. So the folks at the Everglades Park hung effigies in the park around the parking lot, which was very effective. And the, the vultures stayed away, but then the rangers spent all day talking to visitors who were freaked out by the <laughs> vulture, dead vultures hanging upside down from the trees. So... In the end, they just put a box of tarps out and said, hey, put a tarp over your car because vultures are going to come and defile it. And remember, these are just the attempts to stop birds without killing them. Throughout history, there are plenty of attempts to deal with unwanted birds through actual acts of war. There was crow bombing, um, which is exactly what it sounds like, dynamite, and metal shards stuck in cardboard tubes and planted in roosting nests. In Texas in the 1950s, a single crow bombing operation was said to have killed 50,000 birds. During World War II, albatross... Oh, there's another one. I wrote albatrosses? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Albatrice. I don't know. (laughs) Many albatrosses. I don't know. Okay. Well, during World War II, uh, some large seafaring <laughs> birds were colliding with American aircraft on the island of Midway in the Pacific Ocean. And in response, the military sent 200 men to club the birds to death for, quote, six to seven hours a day. There was some 80,000 birds killed this way. 
but the following year, they couldn't even tell the difference. The birds that were left were still causing problems for planes. It boggles, it boggles the mind. Yeah. And it's still happening today. In 2018, the USDA Wildlife Services killed half a million red-winged blackbirds in order to try and stop them from eating sunflower crops, literal bird seed, as Mary writes. Half a million birds. That is just pretty hard to swallow. And again, the overall effect on crop damage, negligible. And just to be clear here, it's not, it's not that the effect is negligible on the birds. There's been a dramatic reduction in the overall population of birds, both rare and common. So what we're really talking about here is that you can reduce the number of birds, but they'll still cause the same amount of damage to crops unless you eradicate them entirely, which is just not what I think anybody wants. Here's where you see Mary, as well as some of the folks she talks to, making the case that this kind of operation is futile, unnecessary killing. Regardless of how you feel about the ethics, it's not even effective. There's one epic story that Mary uncovered. In 1932, there were a whole ton of emus, big ostrich-like birds, that were eating and generally wrecking wheat fields in Western Australia. A pair of military machine gunners were dispatched under the authority of one Major GPW Meredith to do away with the birds. But emus are fast. They are fairly well camouflaged for the Australian outback. So despite the firepower and the fact that they can't actually fly, uh, Major Meredith was only able to kill 25 birds in two days. Day three, he and the other two men set up an ambush by a watering hole. Here's Mary reading from the book. When the birds were a few hundred yards out, Major Meredith gave the order to fire. As the dust settled, the men got up to count the bodies. An underwhelming 50 birds lay dead. Excuses were made. The machine gun jammed, someone told a reporter. Someone else conjectured that the majority of the bullets were passing harmlessly through the birds' plumage because the emu has, quote, more feathers than flesh. Major Meredith believed hundreds more had been hit but survived. He credited the emu with an almost supernatural ability to, quote, face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. He sounded wistful. If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. On day six, Major Meredith withdrew in defeat. Quote, Emus appeared in huge flocks along the road, observed the Perth Daily News, as if to give a mocking farewell. The more and more I read the book, the more I found myself really rooting for the animals in almost every possible way. Yes. Did you find yourself on a similar journey? Absolutely, particularly with birds, because birds, nuisance birds that eat crops, um, they just get poisoned and slaughtered. And I mean, they did in the, uh, I mean, because they're huge populations in the millions, but, uh, you know, uh, 500,000 a year will be killed. And and, and I just think, and nobody, because it's kind of under the radar, you know, we're very attuned to what happens to uh, bears and cougars, you know, sort of charismatic sparsely distributed wildlife birds, I, people don't really give a lot of thought to that. And 
the more I read about something, some of the things that have been done uh, over the past hundred years, I just thought, oh, come on. <laughs> it's like, you just want these guys to win. Yeah, they're just, they're just trying to have dinner. The only thing I'll say is that I root for the animals, but I also feel a lot of sympathy after reading this book for the people who are like in the thick of this science. Like we're, we're talking about biologists, not bounty hunters, you know? And they are smack in the middle of two groups, people who have an interest in controlling some wildlife population for some reason or another, ranchers, farmers, frightened homeowners, and people who think that we ought to be protecting animals at all costs. Absolutely, I can't imagine, I'm, I can't imagine how, how they can balance those two things. Like, con- like conserving or killing animals is not a subject in which compromise feels good to either party. Yes. It's very, it's very hard to find middle ground between those two approaches. You know, there's a line in the book um, that, from somebody who's a mountain lion researcher, and he's talking about mountain lions in California, and he said, um, for some people, one is too many, and for other people, 10,000 is not enough. All I can say is I would not want to... I would not want to have a career that puts me in between those two very polarized feelings. of Outside In was produced by Taylor Quimby and Jessica Hunt. It was edited by me, Justine Paradise. Additional editing support came from Jessica Hunt, Felix Poon, and Rebecca Lavoie. Rebecca Lavoie is also our executive producer. Support the show. You can follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, listen wherever you get your audio, and most importantly, tell a friend about the podcast. Or you can just steal their phones and secretly subscribe them. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is made by the fine folks at New Hampshire Public Radio, and we are supported by listeners. You can make a donation to support our work by clicking on the link in our show notes or by visiting outsideinradio.org. Thanks for listening. Crows have eyes. <laughs> a murder of crows. How come that? I can't believe this book didn't have anything about murders of crows. It would have been a perfect pun. It was probably too easy. Mm.